Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, would you would you pray with me? God, you you are good. I, I'm just reflecting on the last couple of songs. Were the whole realm of nature ours, it would it would not be sufficient to add up to what you have done for us so that we could become sons and daughters of God, so that we could be forgiven of our sin and, and rescued and reconciled to, to the Father so that we could know the fullness of joy that is in the presence of God and in Him alone. And Lord, today we we bring to a conclusion, a culmination, a climax, uh, an opportunity for your people. Though though the whole world would not be sufficient, God, you've given us this discipline of, of extravagant giving in response to the extravagant gift of our Savior so that we can we can orient our lives around Jesus, that everything we, we do would be unto a kingdom end and uh, for the glory of Christ. And God, I pray, knowing that your presence is before and behind me, God, I pray that you would help me. And God, that you would help us not to shrink back from what the Spirit would have for us today. And I pray it with anticipation, with excitement, with joy, and in in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we conclude our Treasure Jesus initiative in one sense, and in another sense it's just going to begin. And I want to speak to you this morning on the subject from 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll get there in a little bit, but you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to speak to you on the subject of treasuring Jesus no matter the cost. Treasuring Jesus no matter the cost. And I, I hope you're ready for today, because I am excited, and I don't want to be the only one who's excited, right? It's kind of weird to be excited by yourself. Um, I have been excited about the Hokies in the past, and... I'm still trying to be, but I find that I'm like the only one out there that's still excited about tech. I mean, I, I am not a Fairweather fan. I still wear my tech gear and I, I smile about it, uh, but I don't want to be excited by myself today, and I don't think I will be. Uh, I'm excited because I have heard from several of you how you've been processing this series, and I know that some of you are excited. I, I said at the outset of this series that I would love for North Roanoke to be known as the church in the valley where the people just treasure Jesus. Tell me about that church. It's not about a program. It's not about a person. It's not about a preacher. They are just people that love Jesus. They delight in Jesus. They treasure Jesus. They actually believe the Bible. They believe that eternity is real, that Jesus died to secure it, and they love Jesus. And, And here's what I've discovered over the last three weeks. It's happening in our church. That process is already underway. Some couples have come to me, multiple couples have come to me and said, Pastor, you wouldn't believe what's been happening in our home. 
We've done the devotion. We've taken the assignments that you've given us, and we've actually started to do this process together. And here's what we're finding out. When we talk about treasuring Jesus with our treasure, it brings up all sorts of other conversations. And so we've had multiple good conversations about how we are going to consecrate our lives and devote our lives to to treasuring Jesus with all that we have. Not just our finances, but in every area. Others have have told me just this week, look, we weren't sure how we were going to respond to this moment, and then I got a promotion. We weren't sure how I was going to respond to this, and then God did this, or God did that, or we just finished paying off this, and now we can do that. I'm, I'm excited. But I'm more than excited, I'm also committed. I'm committed to leading in this. I, I, the very first Sunday I told you Stacy and I would lead, and, and it's not just me, I'm delighted to report our whole staff team is vested in this process. They've already responded. They've already handed in their cards, and I'm delighted to report to you over the next two years, our entire staff team, is, is their combined commitments are right at $100,000 over the next two years. You, you can do the math. That's, that's lavish generosity on the pa- part of your staff team. It's a good start, but it's, it's not just up to the leaders, right? If the leaders lead and nobody else goes all in, this isn't going to work. And the, the Treasure Jesus initiative is a call for the entire church to not just be consumers on Sunday morning, but to be contributors when it comes to loving Jesus and, a, and advancing His mission. And why should we treasure Jesus in this way? We should treasure Jesus in this way because He is our greatest treasure. There's nothing greater than what we have in Christ, the presence of God in our lives, in us, among us, and for us. And before we get to 1 Peter, there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament that illustrates how hungry the people of God are for the presence of God that just blows my mind. I wanted to preach this message, but God wouldn't let me get away from 1 Peter, so you're going to get two sermons this morning. Just kidding. Just, just a little illustration. But do you remember when... God gave the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. And then they, well, how are you going to build a tabernacle? We've got to receive offerings to construct the tabernacle. And do you remember what happened in Exodus 36? You're going to be like, you're making that up. I'm not making it up. You can go back to Exodus 36 and see it for yourself. The people brought more than was needed. The guys working on the tabernacle, like Moses, dude, we can't do anything with all this stuff. Like, we're done. We, we got it. We're good. So then we read in verse 6 and 7 of Exodus 36. This is, this is amazing. Word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And let me submit to you, church, if that happened among a people who had been rescued from physical slavery in Egypt, how much more can it happen for a people who have been rescued from sin and death and slavery to self and idolatry and everything else that does not save but condemns and defiles? We have a Savior who's rescued us from slavery to sin and death. How much more ought we respond to the truth that the presence of God through the blood of Christ, is right here and right here so that we can take it out there. 
It's with this idea in mind that I want to ask you to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 3. This, this chapter has captured my attention for months now. When the fundraising committee and I began thinking about praying through this initiative, this chapter was already in my heart and already in my mind. And in this letter, 1 1 Peter, Peter is addressing Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire and they are beginning to face intensifying persecution for their faith in Jesus. So the context is the costs of following Jesus are intensifying. And believers are, are now tempted to take the easy path of, you know what? Now that it costs more to follow Jesus, let's just fit in with the world. So Peter writes to encourage them to live holy lives and to endure in the faith. That's the context of the letter. And in this letter, Peter does not directly talk about generous giving. And yet the concept of generosity is really embedded throughout his thinking. He, He tells us that we no longer live for the pleasures of men, but for the will of God in chapter 4 verse 2. He speaks of being hospitable, being ready to host one another in our homes because we cannot expect to be welcomed in the world, chapter 4, verse 9. He speaks of generously using our spiritual gifts in service to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And he speaks throughout the letter of the subject of holiness, being marked off from the world for God. And there are a few things that demonstrate holiness in our lives. Separation from the world to God as much as treasuring Jesus with our treasure. Do you know that the world thinks treasuring Jesus with your treasure is nonsense? Just last week, someone told me about their journey in, in growing in generosity. He said, you know, there was a, an initiative at our church years ago, and I went to my financial planner and we were talking about my retirement plan and what I do for the church. And you know what the financial planner said to him? If you're going to retire, you're going to have to stop, stop supporting your church. You know what? That's time a good time to fire your financial planner. Right? The world thinks this is crazy. They turn it into, well, the pastor's just money grubbing. All the things that the world says about churches. Look, I'm not asking you to give for me. I'm asking you to give in response to the king. Because he has given this as a way for us to enjoy him deeply. There's nothing, I shouldn't say there's nothing. There are a few things like giving generously to the king who gave his all. It's, it's an incredible spiritual exercise that the world rejects. The, world, the world's like, this is foolishness. And you know what? That man, he continued to put God's agenda ahead of the world's agenda. And God prospered him and he is now successfully retired. Church, we ought to pursue holiness as a way of life. Jonathan Edwards says this, A true and faithful Christian doesn't make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Jesus. And church, we are never more like Jesus than when we give for the glory of God and the good of those who don't know Him yet. So today, we're going to consider Peter's encouragement to live for Jesus even when the costs of following Jesus are on the rise. All right? Verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll go down through verse 5 to begin. Peter writes this, Blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The first thing I want you to see, church, is when obeying Jesus is costly, when the costs are on the rise, when they're intensifying, when the world tells us it's crazy to follow Jesus, it's too much, what do we do? The first thing we do is we reflect on what God has done for us through Jesus. It's that simple. Why do we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Why do we sing the gospel to each other week in and week out? Because we need to be reminded of the gospel. Peter is is writing to Christians facing real challenges for following Jesus. And over the last three weeks, you may have felt like these sermons have been a real challenge. Like, would you get off this topic, please? I, I have sat where you sit. I've been through these initiatives. I know what the enemy is whispering to you because I've had him whisper it to me. He takes our uneasiness and our unsettledness and he whispers to us, oh, that, that giving stuff is just for the people who are already wealthy or already doing it. Or he says something like this, if God really loves me, he wouldn't ask me to make sacrifices. Satan has no interest, zero interest, in you experience the victory and joy of living sufficiently and giving extravagantly for the glory of Christ. But I am not going to stop preaching the worthiness of Jesus and the rightness of our extravagant response to him because it is in the word. So how does Peter encourage faithfulness under fire? He begins with praise, does he not? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're facing trials, you're facing tribulations, you're facing hardship and persecution. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at all that God has done for you in and through Jesus. So what do we do when the costs intensify? When we want to cave, we remember the gospel. We recall the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God that we sinned against, the God that we rebelled against, has dealt with us. Do you see it in verse 3? Not according to what we deserve, but according to His great mercy. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve death, everlasting torment, and separation from the favorable presence of God. But we instead Through Christ received mercy. And not just a little bit of mercy. Uh, The the word in Greek for great is mega. We got mega mercy. The only way we could be saved, the only way we could be rescued is if God brought in a mercy that was otherworldly, that was outside of us. He had to come and substitute himself for us. So that we could be reconciled to God. Because just one sin against an infinitely holy God is an everlasting offense that can only be canceled by God himself. And what did he do? He came down and did just that. He allowed us to hear the gospel. The Spirit confronted us with our sins. He brought us to our knees to worship and adore and believe on our Lord Jesus. Do you see it in verse 3? He caused us to be born again. We went from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We went from following Satan to being children of God, Ephesians 2. And this is an irreversible reality. Because God doesn't unsave those that he saves. 
Those that God makes alive through faith in Jesus can't be made unalive. We've been born again, not to a hope that might make it somehow, some way, but what kind of hope? A living hope. This is possible not because not only because Jesus died for our sins, but also, do you see it? It's through his resurrection because he conquered the grave. Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is ruling and reigning in righteousness right now. He is interceding at the right hand of the Father on behalf of all who call upon the name of the Lord. And nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. We have a living hope. He is our risen and ascended high priest. And for all who are cleansed by his blood, we have a hope that does not disappoint. And when Jesus returns, we will not need to be ashamed. Peter encourages us to to follow Jesus even when it's costly by reminding us of the hope that we now have. Do you have this hope? Do you know this king? Do you know the joy, the fullness of joy that is found in having your sins forgiven? I pray that you do, and if you don't, I'd love to speak with you more. But, but Peter doesn't just talk about our present hope. He also talks about our future inheritance. Look at verse 4. Jesus has secured an inheritance that, unlike our stuff, the clothes you have on, the cars that you drove here in, and anything else that you have, it is an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, it can't be destroyed or corrupted or changed. God is the one who secured the inheritance, and nobody's going to mess with it. And get this. This is such good news. It is kept for us. The word kept means guarded or reserved. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have a reservation that is guarded by God. Have you ever made a reservation in a restaurant and then you've been one-upped by the person who could tip a little more on the front end and take your place? That's not a good feeling. Oh, well, Mr. Palmer, we had your reservation, but we seem to have lost it. They're sitting at my table right there. That's not going to happen through Jesus because it's not about how much you have or how much worth or merit you have. It's all about the blood of Jesus in your place. It is guarded by God because God's looking at Jesus, not at you. He's looking at the one that you've trusted in, not whether you had a good day or a bad day. Has anybody ever had a bad day? I got up this morning. I was so excited to be here. I was so pumped. I've been praying for this day with intensity like never before. And I told Stacy, I was like, I'm running a little late. Could you make my coffee? She made my coffee. I grabbed my coffee. Did y'all know it was windy this morning? And I had my hands full. I had my computer bag and I had my Bible and I had the, these stickers that, that you can seal uh, your commitment with uh, in a box. And I, I'm juggling and I'm like, I just got to get my coffee up on top of my car. And the wind's blowing. I'm like, it's blowing, but the coffee's going to be heavy enough. It's not too bad. And right as I put the computer bag in the car, my coffee comes flying at me. In that moment, if my reservation in heaven was up to me, I would have lost it. 
reservation is as good as Jesus is. It is secure. When Jesus comes to judge, those who hope in him now will be saved forevermore. So as we have an opportunity to orient our financial lives around Jesus, the question this morning that we have to answer is, do we believe these truths? Do we have this living hope? Do we have this inheritance? Or are we just trying to secure ourselves with the world's perishable things? If we have this hope and this salvation that is presently guarded by an act of faith in Jesus, then we will not run away from sermons on giving or despair when persecution comes. When living for Jesus seems too costly, what do we do? We reflect on what God has done for us in Christ. We sing the gospel, we rehearse the gospel, we remind ourselves of the gospel, and we believe that our eternity has been secured by the King of Kings. Peter continues in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have seen him, th- though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now See Him, you believe in Him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Second thing I want to show you, when the, when the costs of following Jesus seem to intensify, we must understand genuine faith, genuine faith is more precious than even the most precious things in this world or in this life. The Christian life is counterintuitive in many ways, is it not, church? It's a, it turns your world upside down. But the, the way that takes the cake for me, that the Christian life turns the, wor- the world upside down, is rejoicing in your trials. Who does that? What other faces like? Rejoice in your trials. Yay, trial. Coffee all over me, and I'm already late. Hallelujah. At the beginning of verse 6, when Peter writes, in this, what is he talking about? He's talking about everything he just said. Right? In the reality that has been secured for us through Jesus and the inheritance that we have, you can rejoice because of what you have in Jesus. Despite the trials that bring us grief, rejoice. And this word rejoice is not the typical word for rejoice. It's the, the, the super rejoice. Exult. Be crazy in your joy. Be full of joy. Jump for joy in all that you have in Jesus, especially when the trials come. Jump for joy when the trials come because guess what? They're just for a little while. Now, some of you are like, but I've had a trial that's been going on for a good while. And the reality is, trials often don't seem like they're a little while. But compared to eternity with Jesus, they're nothing. So rejoice. Jump for joy in the midst of your trials. Jesus has overcome the grave. Now, in verse 7. We get to the purpose of the trial, right? And our rejoicing in it. Do you see it? Like, what is the point, God? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Do you hear an echo of James chapter 1? James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So why do trials come to people who know and love God? They come because they confirm genuine faith and they expose false faith. Jesus warns us, does he not, about the gospel seed that falls on seemingly good soil. Somebody gets off to a good start, but then it's later choked out by trials, if you will, by by thorns and weeds. Saving faith is not destroyed by the weeds of the world. Saving faith endures, it perseveres through hardship, it is refined in the fire, and it is therefore precious. It keeps looking to Jesus who is precious. A precious faith is a faith that treasures Jesus even in hardship. So why do some people lean into a series on giving and accept gladly whatever challenge the Spirit lays before them? while others refuse to attend or make fun of the pastor. Here's why. Because people who are following a crucified and risen Savior understand God will graciously give us opportunities for our faith to be tested and strengthened and proven. Saving faith is not a hypothetical faith. It's a faith that acts. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that gives and serves and prays and obeys. Jesus is the one to whom we go all in and treasure. We treasure him with our lives and our livelihoods because Jesus is better and our eternity is sure. In the Palmer house, and please understand, I I don't want to boast. I just want to give an example. I want to lead by example. In the Palmer house, this is what that looks like. Do you all have bills every month? Anybody have bills? Oh, just the Palmers. I'm coming to move in with y'all. So in the Palmer household, here's what that's going to look like for the next couple years. Our biggest bill every month, unless Elizabeth figures out how to take another trip to the ER at youth camp. Our biggest bill every month is going to be our Jesus bill. And it is the only bill, quite frankly, that I enjoy paying. I didn't like sending that check to the hospital. I don't like sending the check to Roanoke County for my taxes. I don't like sending the check to the federal government. I don't like any of those checks. But you know the one that gets me excited? The Jesus bill. Saving faith goes all in on Christ. It's a faith that perseveres in the face of testing. It's not a faith that seeks excuses or exemptions to the cost of following Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me, right? Saved people might start out with a shaky faith or a or have seasons of unsettledness, or a faith that simply needs to be informed and shaped by the Bible. But saved people want to see their faith grow. They want to see it stretched so that they can grow deeper into the heart of God and become more like His Son. Because on the authority of God's Word from 1 Peter, listen to this, a stretched faith that stands the test is an authentic faith. A stretched faith that stands the test is an authentic faith. And for some of you, 
here this morning. This series has been sent by God, not just so North Roanoke will know where we stand financially for the next couple of years, and hopefully we can see a, a kids' ministry that is combined and consolidated and secured. For some of you, the reason that you've had this series is because God is testing and growing your faith right now. And I want to urge you to seize the opportunity that's before us because a faith that is tested and found genuine is, do you see it in verse 7? It is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What's the point? Here's the point. Gold is going to perish, but people still test it to make sure it's authentic, don't they? Well, is it pure gold? Let's find out. Let's expose it to fire, burn it down, and see if there's still gold there. If we do that for stuff that doesn't matter, how much more should we want to make sure that our faith is genuine? How much more should we want to test our faith and authenticate it and make sure it's precious? How much more ought we delight in the fiery trials, as Peter calls them in 1 Peter 4.12, so that our faith is proven genuine, leading to the praise and glory and honor that believers will share in at the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 7. Here's here's Peter's point of comparison. I, I want to be sure you get this. If we welcome a fire to authenticate the genuineness of gold, then why wouldn't we welcome trials to authenticate the genuineness of our faith which, if it isn't genuine, will miss out on walking the streets of gold. Some of you are still interested in making sure you got pure gold in your house, but you don't know that you're going to walk the streets of gold with your king because as soon as the time of testing of your faith comes, you walk away, you make excuses, you check out a church. And more than giving or anything else, in this text, I, I want you to see that it's time to lean in and let God authenticate your faith. Go all in for Jesus. What is the object of genuine faith? Peter flows naturally from the blessings that will belong to believers right back into celebrating the one who makes the blessings possible, doesn't he? Look at verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. You treasure him. You adore him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, saving faith is precious because it passes the tests that come. How? Not by looking to ourselves, but by looking to Jesus, no matter the cost. Genuine faith looks to Jesus as the most precious treasure of all. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. He is my treasure. He's my hope. He's my salvation. I, I adore Him. And this culminates with the, with the most precious gift imaginable. What, what is that gift? The salvation of your souls. I once was lost, but I've been found. I was a wretch, but I've been healed and reclaimed. And he's a, He has called me a, a saint. Though I'm a wicked sinner through the blood of Jesus, I'm a saint. And I will be with Him forever. Praise God. So to encourage believers facing the the rising costs of following Jesus, Peter tells us to cherish the opportunity for our faith to be proven, but for this to happen, how does that happen? How do we pass the test? How do we move from hypothetical faith into authenticating faith? Skip with me down to verse 13. 
And some of you don't like skipping, and I understand that. Here's what happens in 10, 11, and 12. You ready? Peter says, the prophets were looking for this. They weren't looking for anything other than this. They were looking for Jesus. God didn't mess up. Israel's not a failure. He is building a kingdom of Jew and Gentile and Samaritan and everybody else who has faith on Jesus, the true temple of God. So don't look around for anything else. Jesus is it. He is the one who secures your salvation and your entrance into glory with God. All right? Verse 13. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself in fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You say, that's a whole sermon right there. It is. I'm just going to summarize the main point. We live for Jesus by treasuring Jesus. We pass the test by stop. We don't just keep talking about how we're going to have faith. We actually begin to live out that faith. So as we close, I want to quickly note the progression of thought in this passage. In verse 13, Peter moves from reflecting on the gospel and cherishing the test to actually taking it. And he begins with the mind. Do you see that? We've got to prepare our minds for action, verse 13. Literally, Peter says, we've got to gird up our minds. Now, this is imagery. Back in the day, they wore long tunics, right? And if you were going to take a run, you had to hike up your tunic so that you could run. And he's saying we're going to gird up the loins of our minds. The, The imagery is getting mentally prepared to do something. Not just thinking about doing something like, I'm going to do this, and what is it going to take to run for the glory of Christ? We have to prepare our minds for action. When Samuel and I drive to cross country races, The conversation usually starts out light and fun. But when we get to within 10 to 15 minutes of the course, I begin to strategically ask questions to get Samuel to situate his mind in the race. Tell me about the start. Tell me about the mile split. Tell me where every hill is. Tell me the runner that you're targeting to beat today. Church, to run well, this race of faith, we have to be mentally engaged. But Peter also calls us to sobriety, doesn't he? To soberness, to steadfastness, to steadiness over the long haul. Did you know that following Jesus in a world that is anti-Jesus is not easy? And Peter is not a pie-in-the-sky Christian. He says we have to be sober-minded we have to understand that we, we need a hope that transcends this present world and our present challenges. When we go to a cross-country race, guess what Samuel's getting ready to do? He's getting ready to run his little heart out. It's not easy. 
It's one of the most competitive and challenging sports there is, and there's a sobriety about it, there's a reality about it, and yet we're going to do it. Once our minds are prepared and we have a, a, a realistic mindset about what God has called us to do, we see in verses 14 through 17 that we pursue holiness in our living. In other words, we do what God saved us to do. Did you know God saved you for a reason? It's to be set apart for God. We obey our Father and glorify His Son by living as Jesus as He lived for us. So what does that mean, North Roanoke? It means in a world that now laughs at biblical sexual ethics, we do what God said regardless of who makes fun of us. In a world that lives for the moment, we live for the Lord who has secured life everlasting. In a world that glories in fame and education and power and career and sports and dominance and wealth, we glory in Jesus. We prepare our minds, we're sober about what God has called us to do, and we pursue holiness. And finally, verse 17 and 18, Peter reminds us the Christian life is not a game. Peter didn't write this letter because he liked to write. I have not preached this sermon because I like to hear myself talk. Actually, I hate to hear myself talk. Has anybody ever done that? Like listen to a recording of yourself and you're like, oh wow, is that really what it sounds like? I am sorry. It's not a game, y'all. What does Peter say? God is an impartial judge. We've either been rescued by Jesus or we haven't. Our faith is either phony, a phony hypothetical sham, or it is real. And he will judge each one according to his deeds. And praise God, my deeds aren't actually my deeds. They're substituted deeds for me through the blood of Jesus. I get to be judged not by my works, but by his works. Those who have saving faith in Jesus will be judged by the works of Jesus on their behalf. Hallelujah. But if we don't have saving faith in Jesus, we're doomed because we've been trusting in ourselves and that's not going to add up. So as those who've been saved by Jesus, saved by God at the high price of his son, what do we do? We conduct ourselves in fear, not in dread, but a healthy desire not to take our God for granted even though it's hard. By a healthy desire to glorify the Father by treasuring His Son. Why? Do you see it in verse 18? Because we know. Actually, it's in the perfect tense. Because we have known and will never forget. It's a knowing that continues. We know and will know and will always know that we've been ransomed, bought, paid for from a futile, empty, godless way of life, not with the treasures or the pleasures of this earth, but with the very blood of the treasure of heaven, with the precious blood of Christ, verse 19. Precious, why? Because he was and is the final, full, sacrificial, spotless lamb, totally sinless, swallowing up our sins so that we could know and belong to and live for and pursue Christ forever as our treasure. Church, precious, precious faith looks to the precious Savior and pursues Him and His way of life no matter the cost because He paid all the price necessary to deliver us from our sin and death and give us a living hope and assure salvation. I suspect over the last few weeks, you, your faith may have been stretched. It may have been tested. And now is the time to respond. Now is the time to treasure Jesus. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for Peter. Thank you that he wrote 
And he reminded us that Jesus is the treasure. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do in this room. God, that you would stir and encourage hearts like never before. And Lord, that you would find us obedient. Not just talking about treasuring you, but in this moment here briefly, that we would actually treasure you and that we would delight and rejoice in whatever it is you see fit to do. We'll give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.